know it's not awkward for you, but sometimes these 10 seconds I'm standing here waiting for that video to start is a little bit awkward. Because I'm looking at you there, and you're looking at me, and I'm like, going, what are they thinking? But yeah, actually, I'm looking up here, and I'm going, God, I'm thankful for every person that I see here today. If you're joining us online, or you're here in the room, you look good. Now, I mean, you really, really look good. I mean, from my perspective, I can only see about this front view. But I'm just kidding. No, I love you. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. As, as Caleb said, if you're a guest of ours today, please, please stop by and see uh, our team at the welcome desk. They're not, not going to hound you. We're not going to give you a car. I mean, I wish we could, but we can't. But if just stop by. We'd love to give you a gift and just say thank you. But more than that, we just want to hear your story. We want to hear where you are and what God's doing in your life, what brought you here, and how maybe you and us together can come alongside one another Make a difference in this world. We're in a series called Change the World. And I'm so excited about where this is leading us as we tread through this year. And God is challenging us already. I mean, I've, I've gotten texts already from this morning just, just saying, wow, you know, just the challenge to be engaged in our culture. And so uh, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn to Acts 13. Just put your finger there. Because if it's okay, I'd like to meddle. I'm not asking your permission. I'm going to do it anyway. But, but I, I really, I, let me preface this by saying that God can bring honor to himself despite anything we do. He can bring honor to himself even sometimes in our stupid mistakes. He can bring honor to himself when we mess up. And so I want to preface that before I dig in to the illustration that I'm going to open with today. Well, let me just, uh, if it's okay, take a few minutes to comment about the Super Bowl. My team didn't win because I don't have a team. So if your team won, um, the Chiefs, if your team won, I'm so glad that your team went all the way to the end, gave it all they got, and won. Just one play made the difference. If you're a 49ers fan, I'm sorry. I truly am sorry that your team lost. I feel your pain of the disappointment that they got beat by one play. I'm sorry. I didn't have a dog in the hunt. However, I did watch, and I saw something that, that uh, made me think. I love things that make me think. I love to get lost sometimes just researching a topic. Some of you are experts at Google. You'll just get on there, and you just, you'll just follow every thread that you can, just reading information. The other day I was looking um, at an island off the, uh, off the coast of Greece. My son was studying ancient Greece and, and I was looking at this island and I've determined I'm going there. There's nothing on it. I just want to go there. But I kept researching just nuances. And so one of the commercials made me think. But not the Arnold Schwarzenegger commercial. But, but hold on a second. Some of you are like me, and you grew up in the South, and you can draw out words longer than he can the A's that he's trying to pronounce as ERs. So, so, you know, give the guy a little bit of grace, but that's not the commercial I'm talking about. I'm talking about the commercial that was put on by He Gets Us. And if any of you saw the commercial, if you didn't, let me just kind of describe it. The whole commercial is this montage of different scenes of someone washing someone else's feet. And it ends with... The phrase, he, he gets us. It's a nod 
to Jesus in John chapter 13 when he's washing the feet of the disciples. And he commands them to wash the feet of one another. But what exactly, I asked, did, was this commercial trying to convey? Well, it got me digging. And if it's all right, I want you to get in the seat beside me, put on your seatbelt, and let's, let's take a drive. The name of the group that produced the commercial is called He Gets Us, funded by an organization called the Servant Foundation, also known as Signatory. According to their website, the Servant Foundation exists to write the last check to the last missionary to be sent out to the last unreached people group so that the last person can hear the gospel. That's pretty cool, you got to admit. I mean, that sentence says so much about a conviction to take the name of Jesus Christ to everybody on the planet before Jesus comes back. I mean, great. However, let's dig a little deeper. Because in an article released last year by Forbes talking about these commercials, in fact, they did a commercial last year in the Super Bowl, they focused on Hobby Lobby founder David Green, who is a supporter and a funder of the, uh, of the signatory, the Servant Foundation. In this sentence, I want you to hear this. It says, the group behind the Jesus-focused ads in He Gets Us is a, limit, is a liability, limited liability company that says that it's an initiative of the Servant Foundation, a public charity and Christian foundation based in Kansas that last year, this was year, the year before that, launched a $100 million effort to improve the image of Jesus. Now, I got some texts about this this week because people were asking me my opinion about, it had nothing to do with the substance of the commercial, but some people were asking me, well, does it not bother me that they could have taken $100 million and given it to the poor? Now, let me, let me answer that because that has nothing to do with my message. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says, we ought to give as, God has pur- as we have purposed in our heart to God. So what people give is their business. It's not my business. And I don't want to get hung up with anyone on what God has purposed in your heart to give. Can we agree on that? Now let me meddle. Because as you get a little bit deeper, now wait a minute, wait a minute, let me get fairness. Let me give some fairness here. There are some great themes communicated in that commercial. Themes of unity, love, embracing people who appear or think differently, serving our neighbor, confronting the church for not acting Christ-like. All of those themes were represented as each little sequence went through as one person was washing another person's feet. The problem was that the group is trying, in trying to tear down walls, is actually presenting a very, very small fraction of what the gospel is really about. It's almost like reading a good book and getting to the end and the book doesn't resolve. It's, for those of you that like animated movies, it's like the last Spider-Man movie that at the end... The, 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 the tension didn't resolve. You're going, you got to I mean, I got to wait a year to find out what happens? But see, 
what they are doing by presenting just a little bit of Jesus and not the entire picture is actually discrediting the image of God. You see, the issue in life isn't how I perceive Jesus, interpret Jesus, or imagine Jesus, or how I feel about Jesus. The question in life should be, is my image of Jesus biblical? Are you with me? Because, I mean, I wake up right I'm I'm hungry right now. I could go eat Chipotle, but I ate it yesterday, and it messed my stomach up. I'm not feeling really good on Chipotle, but maybe tomorrow I might like it. See, that's how fickle we are about our feelings. And you can't determine the truth of God through your feelings or your culture or your perceptions or your experience. You must form the picture of the image of God based on the Scripture. You know something, folks? Let me meddle some more. I want you to be so in love with this book that you can't put it down. This book leads us to life. This book in and of itself is not life. This is not the fourth person of the Trinity. There's no room. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want you to love this book. And when we try to formulate some kind of opinion of Jesus to satisfy culture, I discredit the full image of Christ. Because when you look at that commercial, where it does damage is, yes, it's attacking the church. You see an image of, of a priest washing the feet of somebody that we probably would consider to be in sin. But wait a minute. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Can't rub my chin with this microphone on there. But wait a minute. Is there more to the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet than just someone getting down on the floor and putting their feet in a basin? You know, I think there is more because what I remember of the story is in chapter 13, it introduced that Jesus already knew that he was going to be betrayed and his betrayer is in there. And, and, they, and even the He Gets Us group admits that Judas is in the midst and that Jesus washes the feet of Judas and it had no effect in his life. He gets to Peter and Peter says, you will not wash my feet. But Jesus says, wait a minute, if I do not wash you, You have no part with me. Jesus wasn't just doing a good deed to affirm somebody in their sinful path. Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, the one another, so that the church would get it right with each other and love one another in unity and then take that message out to the world and that by serving in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed because in that, in that symbolic act of washing their feet, Jesus was saying, you are clean. But guys, listen, that falls short If I just trust what I saw in that commercial, it may get us started on the right path, but it's not leading us to the end result. The end result is that I present my life before Jesus Christ, humbly in repentance, that He may save me of my sins and give me eternal life. Simply washing my feet, it's not enough. In fact, if you go, let me me just dig a little bit deeper. I want to encourage you to go read the same things I've read today. On the website for He Gets Us, they have an article called He Gets Us Has an Agenda. And I don't know where you land socially, but let me, let me just say this. We are called 
to confront social injustice. Racism, abuse, we should not tolerate it. But government is not our savior. I don't care if you pull for Joe Biden or Donald Trump, neither one of them are your savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. Listen to what they say about Jesus and see if you come to the same conclusion. He says, He gets us as a diverse group of Jesus followers with a wide variety of faith journeys and lived experiences. Our work represents the input from Christians who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I kind of thought that was prerequisite. Maybe I missed that. As well as many others, though not Christian, share a deep admiration for the man that was Jesus. It says, was And we are deeply inspired and curious to explore his story. Let me stop right here and tell you, you need to be careful who you give your money to. Read, please. God gave you a brain for a reason. Research and read. But this is where it gets tricky. Are you ready? You got your seatbelt buckled, right? I warned you before I said it. We look at the biography of Jesus through a modern lens to find new relevance in an often overlooked moment and themes from his life. Can I put that in words for you? They are seeking to rally social justice and present the gospel as inclusive. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. Jesus' act of washing his disciples' feet and cleansing them was the path for them to then accept him by faith, turn away from their sins and be saved. The commercial falls. Should I pray now? Because now we're going to dig in. Because, I mean, really, what it compels us to do is we need to know the gospel. We, we need to know that the image of Christ does not need to be defended. It doesn't need $100 million to improve it. It's really the church that needs their image improved, not Jesus. And you know how we do that? We stop taking our positions of arrogance and legalism and we get down where Jesus did get on our knees in front of others and we serve our fellow man in the church and our fellow man in the community because Jesus Christ gave everything he had his entire life and died on a cross so that you could have your sins taken away and live. And so when we look at this text today in Acts chapter 13, we're going to look Really, at Paul's, one of his first messages, it's not the first one he preached. But we're challenged that as we read this text and we see them engage in the synagogue at this other city called Antioch, that we're going, we are compelled that we must know the gospel in order to proclaim the gospel. And if I'm going to proclaim the gospel, I need to live by the gospel. So I want you to stand with me as we read a couple of quick verses and then we're going to dig into the, to the rest of it. I want you to look at 1338. If you've got your device, you can type that in. You may have to flip the page because I'm, I'm toward the end of the text. But he says this, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Say proclaimed. To you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. God, as we dig into this, as I sat here and I, I watched our people worship today and worship with them, the thing that's burning in my heart 
is that we would deepen our conviction for lost people today. God, we can go through life and never once even be concerned about the soul of another. God, I pray that as we leave today, that we would be encouraged more than ever to be aware and watching of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. The cool thing about this message is it resonates directly with what our mission statement is here at Ebenezer. To lead the broken to hope in Christ. Where we're picking up here is in verse number 13. You know, this is after last week when Paul and Barnabas had gone up against Elias and, and saw the pro-council saved after Elias was, was, was struck blind. And it picks up, in 13 says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia, which is like directly north. And so if you're looking at a map, you're almost kind of center in the Mediterranean in modern day Turkey. That's where we are in this journey. But I want you to notice the second part of verse 13 because it's going to come up again when we pick up this series in May. That seems like a long time from now. But John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Please make note. Because that's going to come up again. Some of you know why it comes up again. But make sure you note that John left him and went home. Maybe he got seasick. Maybe the shrimp uh, kebab didn't agree with him when he got in there. And the Mediterranean spices might have just tore his stomach up like Chipotle tore me up yesterday. Whatever the reason, he went home. He says, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. You're going like, well, why is it called Pisidia? Well, it was near Pisidia, but... Remember, last week they were in another town called Antioch. So last week they left Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem, directly north in Syria. Now we're over like east-northeast at this area called Pisidian Antioch. Kind of in like the, if you could take Turkey and draw it into quarters, kind of like in that first to second quarter of the country. And it says that that day, the former Pharisee and the former Levite... On the Sabbath, went into the synagogue and sat down. Remember we talked about last week that God will use our experiences and our history in our ministry. Well, what better place to go and find some people of a kindred spirit who knows the same things you know and may have grown up the same way you did. Remember, Paul was from Tarsus, which is kind of halfway between the two Antiochs. We have Barnabas, who's from Cyprus. Neither of them grew up in Jerusalem. They were familiar with with the treks going back to Jerusalem, but quoting Father William Fred, I loved, I just loved, your name just rolls off the tongue, Fred. For the Israelites, forgiveness of sin revolved around the sacrificial system that was in Jerusalem. Some of these Jews had never been there. They'd read about it. They have heard about it. In fact, if you go on in just a minute, it'll say that they read from the law and they read from the prophets. The people in this synagogue, which was kind of a gathering that was established after the exile of the Jews in 586 under Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, they were expelled and they scattered. And so they started having small group studies to read the scripture. But worship, if you read the book of Leviticus, revolved around what happened in Jerusalem. The system for the synagogue was actually broken. What they were reading had no effect to them. The only thing they could draw out of it was that God made promises and he was going to keep them. 
if they even perceived that. But I want you to notice with point number one, that if we're going to take the gospel, if we're going to proclaim the gospel, the first thing that we need to do is to determine to engage the culture, and that's exactly what they did. They went in to the synagogue, people just like them, and they sat down just like the rest. They listened to the reading of the scripture just like the rest. They waited just like the rest. But then, listen to what it says. He says, after reading, this is verse 15, the, the law and the prophets. All right, you see that? They read two different passages. And I have a theory that I'll tell you in a minute of what I think they read in the prophets. It said, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And that was kind of common. That was kind of common. Even Jesus got up and read the scroll and made comments and so it wasn't uncommon, but they recognized Paul and Barnabas as being like them too. In fact, here's the thing. They could have gone outside and barged in. They could have rushed in and, and tried to silence them and said, wait a minute, you're telling falsehood. I got the truth. How many times have we ever done that to somebody that we love and cut off our opportunity to share the gospel? They weren't standing outside the synagogue with picket signs in their hands. Are you with me? They went in and engaged the culture by sitting down, shutting up, not picking their nose and waiting for the opportunity. They waited to earn the right to speak. What, what earned that right? Well, I believe it's because they recognized them as a Pharisee and a Levite. I don't know how, I'm, I'm sure they probably dressed poor, but maybe by their demeanor, maybe by things that they were saying, they recognized, man, these guys are, they're, they're, they're tight, they're tough, they're smart. But who was giving them the smarts? Who was giving them the intelligence? you got to rewind the tape. Remember Paul when he was Saul? What was he doing to the church? He was persecuting the church, leading them to their death, arresting them. He, gets mar- he gets, uh, meets Jesus and is blinded and gets his sight back. And now instead of trying to kill the church, he's trying to build the church. What better person to contend for the faith? But he couldn't have done that unless he was willing to engage the culture. Now, I'm like you. I, there's a lot of things in culture that makes me sick. Turns my stomach. But I can make a decision. I can either hide and run from the culture. Or I can choose how, like Jesus said, to be in the world but not of the world. He prayed that we would not be taken from the world, but that the world would not be in us. In fact, you find that in John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. You remember, we talked about this. The world hates, hates us because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But I ask you not to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Therein is the formula by which we engage culture. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. What does that mean? That means that who I am, not just geographical, but who I am... In this world, my, my, my connection is now heavenward. I'm not of this world. This is not my source. But he wants us in this world so we can impact the world. Attempting to win the world by being culturally relevant, what does that accomplish? If Jesus is not of this world and the world hates him, where will Jesus ever be relevant to this culture? He's not. 
Because this world is hostile. When we attempt to connect people by distorting the truth or affirming the sin of society, the gospel loses its power. A gospel that does not call people to repentance and faith is not the gospel. And I think when we step back and we think about where we are and why God puts us where he puts us, we have to determine to engage the culture in which God has put us. And we may never know exactly every nuance of the culture. I went to Ecuador to preach one time. And I, I mean, I was probably, I don't know, it was, wow, golly, I'm old. Ten years ago. And I was asked to speak at this little community church. And, you know, you, you think, all right, well, I'll just go in. And I got this, I got this sermon in my back pocket. I'm just going to pull this out. And you know what I realized quickly? None of the applications mattered. Because all of my applications was based on Americanized Christianity. I was preaching from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. About loving the Lord God, your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Teach these diligently to the children. Mark them on you in your house, and when you get up, when you lie down, when you walk, when you sit, everything should be inundated with the Word of God to train and teach the next generation, right? Well, you know, and I didn't sit there and say, now, when we have supper around our table and we get out our Bible, some of them didn't have Bibles. Or when we sit down together as a meal, well, some of them weren't sitting down together as a meal because they were working 14 to 16 hours a day. And even at that, we learned that when the kids came home from school, it was a little bit, and this is going to be hurtful in our minds, but they made the young men go and study and do homework and play soccer, and the young women were made to go milk the cows. My trivial Americanized applications meant nothing to them. At the end of the day, the only thing that mattered was the truth of God. And giving the Holy Spirit the room to speak into their life and direct them how God would lead them Based on his truth, not my good ideas. We engage the culture to confront the culture. But we do so so that we can learn where they are. We do not have a license or permission to demean people. To be aggressive, to be arrogant, to be judgmental in a way that devalues them. What we do is we go to them and we love them the way Jesus loved them. Jesus on the cross, let me remind you, one of my favorite sayings on the cross is when Jesus looked down and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You know how you can apply that in your life? When people do stupid stuff against you, you can say the same thing, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then turn the mirror around and say, you know what, and I don't either. Every one of us in this room is broken. Everyone in this room is broken. I don't care if you're the richest person in this room or the poorest person in this room, you are broken. I don't care if you grew up in a single family, single parent home, or your parents are still together. You are broken. I don't care what high school you went to, what college you went to, if you have degrees or you don't have degrees. Guess what? You are broken. I don't care if you walked in here today and don't have a single problem on the slate. You are broken. Jesus said, I didn't come to those who are well. I came to the sick. But the truth was, the Pharisees were just as sick as the ones Jesus came to. And so we must declare Jesus to the broken. Point number two. From verses 16 through 37, Paul is going to contend for the resurrection. The historical fact that Jesus came from the dead. And it's, and it's beautiful because he begins, he's, he, they say, hey, you boys got anything to say? And they were like, um, if you've ever, uh, never mind, I better not quote that movie. But, 
I was going to quote Ace Ventura. Some of you are laughing, so you know that part where he goes, and he just starts vomiting out this story. Well, that's what, kind of what Paul did. He said, hey, look, let me tell you how good God's been to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them through the sea by his sovereign hand. And then he kept them in the wilderness for 40 years by his sovereign hand. And when they got to the land of Canaan, he drove out the seven nations by his sovereign hand. And then when they got into the cycle of the judges where they would sin against God and be taken into captivity, cry out to God, and God would rescue them by a judge, by God's sovereign hand, he brought them through that. And then they asked for a king, and he gave them Saul. And Saul became king, but Saul disobeyed God. But by God's sovereign right hand, he raised up David to be the king. And then he promised in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to have a king come from your lineage, David, that will be king forever. And then he says, and let me tell you something, folks. He's standing in that synagogue. And he said, there's this guy named John the Baptist who came down to this river. And he said, there's somebody coming. There's somebody coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to lace. That, that, that Messiah that you've been reading about in synagogue. That Messiah that you've heard promises about. That you've read about. That you've heard in the law and the prophets. That, that man, he's come. And you don't have to come to Jerusalem to get forgiveness. He brought forgiveness. To you, right Fred? And he said that John, here's the first allusion to the gospel. He said, John called you to repent. But the only way that sin was taken, taken away was when Jesus died on the cross. And he pointed out, he said, now let me tell you what. Your leadership back in Jerusalem, they hated him. And they put him on a cross, gave him over to Pilate, and Pilate crucified him. And they took his body, and they buried it in a tomb. But now, I want to pick up with you. I've got to find my place. I got real excited there. In verse number 30, look at verse number 30. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, one of the greatest truths that we hold to today, is they put his body in a tomb, and they put a, a stone in front of it, and they sealed it. But it says in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And he proved that he beat the curse of sin and death. My friends, that is the gospel. It's more than a commercial of two people washing each other's feet. Are you with me? We must declare Jesus to the broken. And if you're listening, if you're online, and you've never come to that place where you realize how broken you are, Listen, I'm telling you, God will bring you to that place. He will lead you to that place. Because what He wants to do is He wants to heal you from your sin. And so if you pick up where in in 31, He then begins to confirm by the eyewitnesses that they saw Jesus alive. Verse 32, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled to our children that He raised up Jesus. If they didn't listen the first time, He says it again. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God, died, and he decayed. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Jesus Christ is alive. He is not dead. And so just like I said that the story that leads to the climax and never concludes the book, unfortunately that Super Bowl commercial left us hanging. I want to know more. When we begin to come to a place 
that we can see our true brokenness, then we're able to come to a place where God can take our heart and show us the value of what life really is. Salvation without repentance is devoid of purpose and it's devoid of meaning. Broken people. In fact, today we're just a room of cracked pots that God has assembled. And the greatest thing we bring to the table is our praise to the one who made us whole. And I thought right here between this point and the next point it would be cool to show you a video of someone who's become very special in my, my life, Rick Phillips. A few years ago, uh, they videoed his story and in his story he talks about how God broke him. But he'd rather me explain it. I, I want you to watch it. So watch the screen for this uh, on this testimony. My name is Rick Phillips, and this is my story. I uh, had no reason not to live my life for the Lord. I was raised in a godly home. Uh, at a, even before I was born, my father was ordained as a minister. And that was my life. I mean, we never went to bed without family devotions. My, my earliest memories of us in a four-room house, there were nine of us. And before we would go to bed, my dad would lead us all in devotion and pray. Uh, I used to kid say I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church every time the doors opened. And, and I mean, every time the doors opened, we were there. If you lived in my dad's house, that was a requirement. And there was a point that things became uh, legalistic. And a lot, like a lot of young people at that time in my life, I rebelled against that. And I went on about my life. But there was, there was something in the background that, that uh, I know now that was God. Um, in my military career, uh, I was in law enforcement and special operations. I, I was, was uh, severely wounded a couple of times and, and survived it uh, in law enforcement. Um, you know, I got in a shootout one night and, and almost lost my life. And I never will forget my, my dad and mom coming in and the chief telling my, my, uh, my dad how lucky I was. And my dad smiled, my mom smiled, and my dad said, there's nothing about luck about this. Said it's all about God, and even after I left that and I went into to, to business, you know, I, I immediately became successful, and it was just like there was just something out there that just kept blessing me. And even though I wasn't living my life for God, God was there in my life. Um, I mean, I, I was saved at a young age, but that doesn't mean I lived my life as God wanted me to, and. I lived the life that people dreamed of living and, and traveled the world in style and, and was even to the point I was arrogant about it. And then just one day, God showed me just exactly how powerful he was. And he took it all away. And to the, to the point that, I mean, I, I was broke. I, I didn't know how I was going to live. I didn't know how I was going to make the bills, uh, how to get the bills paid and things like that. 
and um, I never will forget. Um, you know, Leith and I, we went to the altar one Sunday morning, the first Sunday in, in January 2003, and I said, God, you know, take my life. If you want me to put a uniform back on, that's what I'll do. But whatever I do, I'll serve you. And uh, he changed it almost immediately. Uh, you know, we've had the family in there with us, and then we've watched the family go on and succeed in their own career paths. Uh, I mean, once once I opened my heart up and and followed God's will, there's not a decision that we make in our lives now without God having His say in it. I, I, I quit trying to explain it a long time ago. I listened to people's description of it, of what what I've achieved in my life, and and I smile when they they tell me how lucky I am, they tell me how talented I am, and things like that. And all I can say is I'm blessed. I'm blessed because I've given my heart to God, I've given my life to God, and. I wouldn't know how to live any other way now. Uh, I'm 67 years old, and I look at my family now, and I look at my children and the grandchildren, and it's not it's not the things that we can do, but it's the things that God has given us. And he's just placed us in a place that I can't describe. But it's all because of him. It's not anything that, that we've done. It's all about what he's done. Not anything that we've done, but what he's done. I don't care what culture you go to. We all have needs. If you sit down with somebody from halfway across this world, they're going to experience pain, loss, and suffering. But if I truly want to engage the culture, rather than going and telling them, I've got all the solutions for your life, what if I sat down and said, tell me what's going on in your life and how Jesus applies to yours. Rick, Rick shared that he got to a place where he was broke. In some ways that was physical, but spiritually it being he was broke. I came to an end of myself. And here are these Jews listening to this story having lived distant from a story they had been reading in the Law and Prophets, and now this man's telling them, this is how you can have forgiveness. Listen to verse number 38 again. He says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him, Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. What, what are they bound to? They're under foreign rule. They're under the weight of sin. And they've, here they've determined to, to engage them in their culture. They've declared Jesus to them. Calling them to admit their brokenness. And then he warns them. He says in verse 40, take heed. So that the things spoken in the prophet will not come upon you. That's why I believe they bred from Habakkuk 1. He quotes it here. says, behold you scoffers and marvel. And perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Well, actually, 
He did describe it to you, to them. No matter where they were, no matter their background, their ethnicity, their raising, the street they grew up on, the school they attended, or the school they quit. The addiction that you have or that you had. No matter where you've been, no matter how much money you have today, every person in this room, because of sin, is broken. And the only solution to sin is forgiveness, which was made possible only by the sacrifice of the Son of God. We need to draw attention to the need for the gospel. He said in that verse, you scoffers, marvel and perish. Those words don't go together. But God was doing something in their day. He told back in Habakkuk, it was the impending judgment that was going to come through the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's going, God, this doesn't make sense. Why would you let evil people come in and destroy your people? Thank God for sovereignty. He's a sovereign God and works things to his purpose and his glory. And he gave them at that moment a, a warning Listen, I'm telling you, this is the only way. That system in Jerusalem, it's gone. It will be gone. In a few short years after that preaching, the city would be destroyed. A.D. 70, and the temple has never been restored yet. Come on Wednesday nights and listen to our Revelation study. We'll talk about that a little bit. But they had nothing. They were bankrupt. And now he's declaring to them, drawing their attention to their need to be saved. Let me ask you a question. Can somebody be saved if they don't recognize their need? Can someone be saved if they're refusing to repent of their sin? I mean, honestly, in a logical mind, that makes no sense to me. Why would I come to Jesus and say, I believe in you, forgive my sin, but I'm going to keep walking in my sin? That doesn't even line up with Scripture. Again, it's the whole story, not a part of the story. What we have to learn is that if we believe the gospel, let's live by the gospel. Let's learn the gospel. Let's ingest the gospel. Let's discover the needs of our culture. Seeking to wash the feet of our neighbors. But then let's take it a little bit further and point it to Christ. Who came to serve, yes, but compels us to ask people to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sin. The only way they will ever find true freedom in this life. And that's what he said to the people in this synagogue. If you want to be free, you need to trust in him. Our mission at Ebenezer is to lead the broken to hope in Christ. So today I want to invite you to come this morning. Come and pray. This is what I want you to pray. I I really wrestled in the first service with with how to say that. But this service, I think I, I got it. I got it down. I want you to pray for the burden for lost people. Back a few weeks ago, we challenged our church that uh, we had 100 ping pong balls up here on the stage. Remember the ping pong balls? 100 of you took them. And you put them in strategic, a strategic place to remember, I've got number 10, and I'm praying for number 10, that that number 10 represents someone who is lost and separated from Christ and needs to know Jesus. And so God, as I'm praying for that person, I'm praying that they would might hear the gospel and be saved. That's what I'm praying. We've had two baptisms. Thank God for those two baptisms. I'm so grateful for that. We have four that are waiting to schedule, and we've got one next Sunday. Praise God. Isn't that awesome? But there's 91 balls still out there. 93, excuse me. 93. Now, I don't know which ball you have. Maybe you have 98, and you're like, well, we'll never get there. You know why we gave you the balls? To culture in you the conviction to pray for lost people. Do you know how convicted Paul was? This man that was standing there contending 
with them about Jesus. He said in Romans chapter 9, I, will, I wish that I could give up my own salvation that my countrymen could be saved. I have never had that thought in my mind. I've always thought, no, I'm saved, so I need to just pass on what I believe. He was so moved in his heart that he said, I wish that I could give up my salvation so that my countrymen would be saved. Do you today have that kind of burden and conviction for lost people? Or do we want to just live our life robotically, getting up every day, going through the motions, coming to church on Sunday, bringing my Bible, dropping my offering in the plate, and going right back to life as normal? You remember last week when I said that the church in Antioch and Syria was like an outpost? What if we begin to see that with Ebenezer? That this isn't just a place to kind of be a catch can, but it's a place to sin. It's a place to sin. So, Father, as we come to this time of commitment, Lord, would you move on our hearts? God, maybe we need to come to the altar and to say, Lord, I want a conviction in my heart for lost people. One that God, that honors you, God, that doesn't seek to destroy and tear people down. One that's not seeking to, to be arrogant or legalistic, but one that truly, like Paul had, that it moves in our hearts so deeply, Lord, that we would be willing to give everything that we might see someone saved. Our countrymen, our Stevens County brothers and sisters, our Georgians, our fellow United States, all the people that are around us. Lord, would you move on us that way and give us that conviction and that burden. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.